We were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about it. I'm Caitlin Chin, I work at CSAS, and I'll be your host for this podcast. Tonight on the podcast, I'm joined by Joan O'Hara and Miranda Lutz, who are with the XR Association. And we're going to talk about immersive technologies, which include virtual reality, augmented reality, and mixed reality. Joan and Miranda recently co-authored a paper with the Digital Trade and Data Governance Hub at George Washington University to explain why the United States should prioritize the development of immersive tech, not only as an economic imperative, but a national security one, too. First of all, Joan and Miranda, thanks so much for joining me at CSAS. I am really excited to talk with you because I think a lot of people, myself included, have heard these terms like the metaverse or VR, but not all of us fully understand what this means. So could you explain to us, first of all, what is immersive technology? And second, how could it affect our everyday lives? All right, I'll kick it off. First of all, thank you very much for having us. And thank you for your interest in this topic in our paper. It was a real labor of love. We worked with George Washington University for the better part of a year to research this issue and see what was going on in other parts of the world around developing, nurturing, and deploying the technology. And we think it really is a critical issue for the U.S. So very grateful for your time and uh, and for this platform to discuss it. Basically, XR, which is an umbrella term for AR, VR, and MR, and also incorporates what is referred to as the metaverse, is a technology that it, it comes in different forms. If you're using virtual reality, you would be wearing a headset. People are often familiar with the Oculus Quest. So that's a, what we call a fully immersive experience, where you are in the immersive environment and you don't have any view of the physical world. It's all a digital, all-encompassing environment. Augmented reality is a digital overlay, typically. So a very easy example is if you have a heads-up display in your car, which I do, and I find it immensely helpful. Um, there might be a projection of directions or something like that on your windshield. That's an example of augmented reality. Another popular one from many years ago was Pokemon Go, where people saw the little Pokemon on their phone and were able to collect them or capture them. That was a, an early version that was popular, I think, of AR technology. MR technology is sort of a mix of the two, uh, but it's augmented reality, a digital overlay that you can interact with. So there are different iterations of uh, the same basic technology. What is referred to as the metaverse, oftentimes people think they've been in, quote unquote, the metaverse if they've done say, a game or an experience in, in VR. So if they've done Fortnite or something in a, in a VR headset, that, that, that is the metaverse. The metaverse is, a, is really a concept, and I am of the opinion that it does not yet exist. It's more like a 3D immersive version of the internet. So if you go to one website, you're not 
that's not the internet. That's a website that's part of the internet. This would be similar in that there would be a lot of different virtual destinations, but the metaverse, the concept is something that would encompass all of that. Uh, and you would be able to sort of transition between one destination, one platform, and another pretty easily. The ultimate objective would be that it's it's seamless, uh, that you don't have to necessarily only use a headset or only use your phone or only use your laptop. You'd be able to use a variety of devices to do things like, you know, participate in a meeting with your colleagues or do some online shopping or play a game or potentially, um, you know, it might augment the work that you're doing. And we'll get into more detail there. But, um, you know, if you're a car designer, you might be able to look at your prototype digitally with your colleagues. And all of all of those experiences would be part of this this idea of a metaverse. So it's not here yet. And it's it's something that we do believe in in some form will be the way that people interact with each other and and do their work and uh, and all sorts of things, deliver healthcare, enhance education, etc. But it is it is a concept that is still being very much worked out within the industry and among think tanks at this point. So we do think that now is the time to be thinking about how the United States, what role it wants to take. Uh, we argue that it, it should be a leadership role, but we do have the benefit of a little bit of time to work things out because it is not something that is, in my estimation, here in 2023. So the metaverse isn't here yet, but are we already seeing companies incorporate XR into everyday products and services? Are there any early examples of that? Either within gaming, you mentioned some examples, or even within other fields like healthcare or manufacturing, et cetera. Definitely. I think healthcare has been one of the earliest adopters of XR technology, and you've seen that all the way from med students at Case Western Reserve University, which developed hollow anatomy, which is a way for them to learn anatomical content using uh, 3D in an AR environment. You also have seen uh, surgeons at Johns Hopkins perform a spinal surgery using uh, AR-guided devices. And then in the manufacturing sector, they're another big adopter of this technology. For instance, Ford uses this technology all the way from the vehicle design. It allows you to design any sort of object. So for them, it's obviously a car. Experience it firsthand, kind of immerse yourself, and that saves a lot of time and money so they don't have to create these costly prototypes you know, the U.S. government also uses it. Lockheed Martin, which was the lead contractor for the Orion spacecraft, used AR to build the parts of the spacecraft. And they found that it reduced time spent constructing the spacecraft by 90 percent. So you see that it does deliver huge efficiencies in in time and also in cost savings. And it, I'll, not to interrupt, but it also reduced error. Yep. So it was quicker and better. Yeah. One of the facts that really struck me from your report is that XR is anticipated to become a multi-trillion dollar industry by 2030, if I remember correctly. And so that's a pretty rapid growth in just just a few years. Yes. And I, I think the statistic that you're probably referring to is looking at growth worldwide. Okay. And that's part of why we put together this report was to take a very clear-eyed view of what's happening in other parts of the world, including and specifically Europe and Asia. So 
China has been at the forefront of this technology and its adoption and development for a number of years. Uh, South Korea is also investing very heavily, and we can get into all the details around that. But if you look at adoption and use worldwide, this will be a multi-trillion dollar industry. If you think about it just in terms of the U.S., where we are right now, that's a very different picture. Yeah. And I definitely want to get into the XR industry in other countries. But first, I want to go back to those benefits that the two of you were talking about. I can definitely see how XR could provide a lot of a lot of real benefits to society in terms of medical students or doctors using XR in terms of educational benefits of XR. For example, if I'm a history student, having the ability to step into a, a virtual world that's simulating simulating historical context. But could you also talk about the national security considerations? Your report covers some of the benefits or risks of XR in the context of national security. What are those? I'll kick it off and then turn it over to Miranda, who I'm sure has additional thoughts. But two things I'll say. One, and it's not just semantics, but economic security is national security. So if this does become the multi-trillion dollar industry as it is anticipated, the U.S., will need to be a part of that, or we will be missing out on economic growth. And as you touched on, we expect that this technology will impact all sectors across the board. And especially, and we can go into this more in, in detail, but manufacturing um, and industrial applications. So other countries are already looking at this as something that's going to save them time and help them produce better quality products more quickly, which they see as an economic advantage. So that's one aspect. But in terms of national security and more along the lines of military application, I think one good example is how this technology could be used on the battlefield in theater to transmit relevant information in front of someone's face without them having to dig out a map or materials or something like that. If you are, say you're fighting a, a battle in an urban environment and part of a building is blown out that was on your original map that you prepared for going into this scenario, that information could be updated instantaneously and you could view a map on your, your glasses that you're wearing or your goggles that would show the change um, in, in the physical structure that you're entering. So things like that would give a tremendous advantage to soldiers on the battlefield. Another example that, that I think is important is how it could serve medics when they're on the battlefield trying to treat wounded soldiers. Obviously, that's a very dangerous situation. Uh, they might be in the middle of a, a, a battle experience. And to be able to have information particular to that soldier right in front of them to, to help make decisions in real time like that under very stressful conditions is another use case that we think has tremendous promise. The Department of Defense engaged Microsoft a couple of years ago in a, a $20 billion contract to develop this technology for the military. So obviously they, they see uh, that it will be an advantage as well. Yeah, it definitely seems like the federal government and Congress have noticed the potential advantages. In 2022, Congress listed immersive technology within the Chips and Science Act as one of 10 key technology focus areas. DOD and the National Science and Technology Council have designated XR as a critical technology. So we've covered some of the economic, societal, and security benefits of developing 
immersive technology. But I think with any new technology, especially one that's developing as quickly and has and covers so many different critical sectors as XR, there's going to be very unique challenges, including governance challenges. So I was wondering if you could talk about some of the potential risks that XR could pose to privacy, to public safety or human rights. What should policymakers be considering? Sure. So something that we do a lot of work around is data privacy, which is probably the first and foremost topic that we here in the U.S. need to get right in order to uh, create the environment in which there can be adoption of XR. So like many technologies, XR relies on data that you give it. Um, So you're interacting in the immersive space. It relies on spatial and geolocation data. And it also relies in some instances on autonomic responses. So for instance, eye tracking can see where you are gazing. And oftentimes this data is collected so that the device can function as it is intended to. Many of these functions help image rendering. So if you look from left to right, that virtual experience should be seamless and that can help reduce feelings of motion sickness, which some individuals can get when they're wearing VR. And so to create kind of certainty for businesses, but also transparency and trust for users, having a comprehensive data privacy law is really important for the XR industry, as it is for other tech industries. And that was certainly an area where the U.S. is lacking in comparison to other jurisdictions that we looked at in this report. Another aspect where I think the EU has done something really innovative is to do citizens panels on the metaverse. Uh, So they collected groups of 200 individuals from all walks of life, gave them XR technology to explore, to um, try different experiences on, and then sought their feedback on how the the government should govern these technologies. So really educating and building up that digital literacy, which will be really important as we transition to this next computing platform. Yeah, I can definitely see how data collection could potentially impact user or public trust in immersive technology. I mean, new technologies are always more difficult to adopt and difficult to understand. But as a as a user, are you going to trust that your headset is safeguarding your biometric information and not using it in ways that can violate your privacy? You touched upon something, Miranda, that I think is really important to highlight, which is how regulations could potentially introduce certainty for businesses as well as promote transparency and trust for users. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that. What can policymakers do to support the rollout of XR and specifically for the United States, what has the U.S. done well in the past and where do you see opportunities for more progress in the future? I think first and foremost, the U.S. needs to have some sort of a vision for how it wants to incorporate this technology into society, whether it's uh, industrial use or, or private use. That's one of the things that we really focused on in our report was to what extent does a country have a vision for this technology? Specifically, in the report, we looked at the United Kingdom, European Union, South Korea, China, and the United States. Arguably, the United States is behind all four of those other jurisdictions in, in what we've done. But to more a more or less extent, each of those other countries does have some sort of a vision for how they want this technology to function in their society. And they're also starting to think about things like 
access to the technology, providing opportunities for people, making sure that we're avoiding another digital divide and not exacerbating that, but rather leveling the playing field. And then, as I touched on before, using the technology to increase efficiency and productivity in terms of manufacturing, that's going to be a big one. But I think the first thing that policymakers need to do here in the United States is to, well, first and foremost, understand what the technology is and what its potential is, and then to create a vision for how they want to incorporate it into U.S. culture. Otherwise, we fear that we will end up being takers in terms of um, regulation. And and even, there's another topic, but supply chain and where parts are being developed and, and the direction that the technology itself takes. So having that more comprehensive vision for how this technology is going to be used here in America, I think, is the first step. Yeah, and I think one example that really stands out to me um, from our research is that China is taking a very coordinated approach to the supply chain for immersive technologies. And so what they've done is create what's called VR towns to consolidate the manufacturing of many of the components that go into XR. Mm -hmm. And they've done that in areas that are either very rural or do not have a lot of economic activity. So it's proven to be a real job generator for them, which is great on the one hand, but also I think that what we've learned through the pandemic and over the past several years is we don't want to be over-reliant on um, adversaries for key components of our technology. And so that's why we've seen this shift to supporting U.S. manufacturing and supporting, quite frankly, U.S. research and innovation. We still have the some of the largest XR companies are American companies, but we don't see that reflected necessarily in um, U.S. government actions. Like Joan said, there's no national strategy. There's no uh, coordinated approach for how the government can procure and adopt this technology to improve its own um, uh, operations and services. So, for instance, the UK has a cyber physical infrastructure strategy and they want to create a digital twin of the entire country to help everything from urban planning to infrastructure to monitoring the impact of, of climate change. And, and yeah, transportation. I mean, everything. And so there's so much potential there that we don't see the U.S. has quite realized yet. Is most of the research and development that we're seeing in XR coming from the private sector? Has Congress or the federal government taken previous actions in terms of funding research and development, in terms of facilitating supply chain components, or even investing in labor or workforce development across the XR ecosystem? It's a great question. So you mentioned earlier that XR was included in the Chips and Science Act. And so as part of that designation as a key technology focus area, it is eligible for R&D funding from NSF and from NIST, which are two of the largest research research agencies in the U.S. government. And so we see that as a really positive step forward. Unfortunately, those provisions have not been fully funded by Congress yet, so there is a shortfall. So often these agencies are being asked to do more with less, um, particularly following the White House executive order on AI, which tasked a lot of the same agencies with research projects. And so while we do see there's a recognition that XR should be the subject of federal research, I don't think that it's quite received the attention that it deserves. So a lot of the 
research is being driven by the private sector and often in coordination with research universities. So Stanford has one of the world's best labs on VR technologies, and they're really driving this forward. Even here in our backyard, the University of Maryland has XR labs, and they're doing great work in researching the technology, you know, how to make things VR headsets lighter, faster processing, but they're also using it for, you know, training law enforcement. And you have students developing these modules, which I think is really exciting. And to your workforce point, it's a challenge that we see here in the U.S. and one that we also heard when we were in Brussels last week in the EU. Having a talent pipeline for these with these digital skills is really critical to the XR industry, and we don't yet have that here in the U.S., and it's not in the EU as well. And so we think more work needs to be done to, frankly, expose people to immersive technologies earlier on so that they can see a career path in XR. And that's what we trying to do here at the XR Association. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, Miranda touched on a good point there that with STEM education and tech talent, you know, a lot of the challenges and, and the factors that will be important to the success of XR technology are shared with other technologies and digital development. So certainly the talent pipeline is an issue beyond just XR. The chip production you know, trying to have more of that U.S.-based is, is something that is essential to XR technology, but beyond that as well. And then, of course, connectivity and rolling out 5G and eventually 6G. This technology in particular can't be used without a lot of bandwidth. Right. So if it's going to be something that is equitably distributed and helping to bridge gaps rather than uh, create them, you know, that, that 5G rollout is going to be essential. Yeah, yeah. And I can imagine that's one of the reasons why an XR strategy probably requires a very multifaceted approach. There are so many stakeholders involved. We're not just talking about the headset manufacturers or the chip developers, but we're also talking about the, the broadband providers, like 5G systems. We're talking about cloud providers, the companies that manufacture various components, like the batteries or the sensors. So there's just a lot that goes into XR technologies. I wanted to touch base very quickly on the challenge of STEM education and developing that pipeline. How can the United States better engage the public on issues of XR governance? I, I do think that there's a gap where a lot of people are not aware of what XR does or sees XR mainly as a component of video games. And so I do think that there is a gap of, of awareness and how XR could be used in everyday services. So how do we how do we bridge that gap and how do we improve digital literacy in general related to XR? So the VA, Veterans Affairs Department, actually has a slogan that I think is quite apt. It's heads and headsets. And I think that's the best way to improve digital literacy with this technology is to give people firsthand experience with that. And so that can start at the high school level and you can be using VR to make math come to life. And then I think also there's a lot of populations that maybe don't have access to cutting edge technologies. And so um, particularly when you're looking at workforce applications of XR. And so we've worked with representatives Lisa Blunt Rochester and Tim Wahlberg on the Immersive Technology for the American Workforce Act, which would create a grant program for community colleges and technical education centers to leverage immersive technologies for workforce development and skills training. And so that those grants would be prioritized for rural and underserved areas. And 
programs like that, I think, are, are really important. There are some libraries that are um, renting out VR headsets as well. So I think it's not just in school and it's not just in the workforce. This needs to be a, a comprehensive approach. Yeah, and I, I would just add that I think leading by example is also another way that the government can help the ordinary person understand this technology. Digital twins we mentioned earlier, that's something that the government has has used in some areas. There was an example of, we did a, a webinar on this a, a few months back, on the um, Tyndall Air Force Base, which was essentially leveled in a hurricane a number of years ago. They worked with Unity and Booz Allen Hamilton to construct a digital twin of the Air Force Base to be able to rebuild it and rebuild it better so that it will be more or less impervious to a storm like that if it happens again. But, you know, government adoption of this technology, I think, helps to raise awareness. We were able to work with Senator Young and Senator Wicker last year to make a request to the Government Accountability Office, GAO, to do a study on government use of XR technology. I believe they're wrapping it up and it'll be published this spring, but they're looking at the ways the government is currently using the technology places that it could use it, and if there are any uh, obstacles to adoption, what are they and how might they be overcome? So hopefully that will be informative and, um, and help with government adoption of the technology as well. Speaking of government adoption, you've spoken a little bit about the EU and China's strategy in XR development and deployment. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what other governments are doing to develop and deploy XR. And then you've also mentioned that the United States does not yet have an XR strategy, unlike some other governments. So what would happen if the United States fell behind in technological competition in this space? We mentioned before about supply chain and how the technology itself will be developed and where the parts will come from, what the chips will look like, that that sort of thing. If the U.S. falls behind, I mean, it would certainly be ironic because we invented the technology here. We've been using it for decades, not in the sense that we're really talking about now, but it has been used to train pilots for, for many decades in simulators, for example. And we have the largest companies in the world that are creating this technology here. Um, Microsoft, Meta, Google, which I should note are, are members of our trade association. But it would be a, kind of ironic if the U.S. ended up being sort of on the receiving end of the technology when, in fact, we originated it. So I think we have an advantage now because we have these companies here who are moving ahead very forcefully on developing the technology. But if we don't pay attention and if the government is not invested in some way at least, I think we risk other countries catching up and eventually surpassing us. And that is certainly a goal. And they have not been shy about saying that. And we can go into examples. One would be China recently in the last couple of months said that they, I believe, if, if I'm remembering correctly, they want to have five companies that are at a global scale that will dominate this industry within the next X number of years. But it's a pretty short time frame. You know, the European Union has said that they want to be the global leader in the metaverse. So it's not like we're sort of inferring this or reading the tea leaves. The leaders have been very outspoken about it. So the U.S. certainly is at risk if, if we don't start paying attention. 
Yeah. And you've mentioned governance issues a a couple of times. I mean, this is going to be the future of the Internet. It's going to be the platform through which we interact with AI. And so who do we want to be setting the rules of the road for this type of technology? Do we want it to be China? Do we want it to be the EU? We're already regulatory takers from them. Or do we want the U.S. to have a seat at the table in creating the vision for the future of this technology. And so we've already seen other countries be first movers in this space. The EU released a strategy for virtual worlds and Web 4.0 earlier this summer that outlines 10 action steps that they want to take, ranging from research and innovation all the way to safety and and data privacy and government adoption of the technology. But they very much view this as their chance to catch up to the U.S. And so they're also investing in, in research. Joan mentioned China has been very focused on this. They've included components of XR in their Made in China 2025 strategy. They have launched things like the Metaverse Industry Professional Committee to solicit input from industry into how they can support the growth and adoption of this technology. And I think that in order for the U.S. to be successful here, we need to have the government and industry working together. And we see the U.K. has been really successful in soliciting industry feedback on this technology. That public-private partnership, like a true partnership, is a a distinct advantage that the United States has over somewhere like China, where it's much more government-driven. So, you know, if we can sort of get it together and amplify that, that will be a strategic advantage for the United States. Yeah, those are all great points. And I think a really interesting question of whether we want to be a leader or a follower when it comes to XR. And I think that applies not only to the development and adoption of this technology, but also the data governance frameworks that will impact its rollout. So data privacy frameworks, frameworks around equity and inclusivity in tech. I think it's worth mentioning that the European Union is consciously thinking of the big tech companies in the U.S. and how they have dominated the internet and social media for the past decade and kind of left everyone else in the dust. They are very much aware that this could be a second bite at the apple for them as our method of communication and computing develops in this direction. They want to be at the forefront of it. So you're starting to see that in other areas where they've mentioned what they call quote-unquote gatekeepers the big tech companies in particular, they're, they're very strategically trying to find ways to not really shut down big tech, but to prevent them from dominating this next computing platform. So it, it is a conscious, conscious strategic decision not to let the U.S. companies run away with this. On that note, when it comes to the EU's focus on a few big tech companies and In current digital markets, such as the search engine market, ad tech, e-commerce, we have seen one or two large U.S. companies control very large shares of their respective markets. Are we seeing something like that in XR technologies, or is the market currently more prone to startups or smaller competitors as well? Well, if you look at XRA membership, over 75% of our member companies are SMEs. And so I think there is a really robust and healthy ecosystem of 
smaller companies that range from you know one person to just a, a couple dozen. And I think that they're a really part important part of the the ecosystem. I don't think we quite see the dominant company yet for the metaverse. There are certainly companies that have prioritized investments in this technology, of course. But I think that there's also a greater sense among the industry that they want to work together to kind of bring about this new vision of the internet. So for instance, we're a part of something called the Metaverse Standards Forum that has over 2,000 entities involved in it from all over the world. And so you've got folks from, of course, you know, Meta and Microsoft to Improbable in the UK, even to ByteDance and Tencent from China. And so everyone's sitting at this table and mapping out how we want to build an open and interoperable metaverse. And so I think the coordination and collaboration among industry players is really unique from our perspective. Some of the things that we can learn from other countries what they're doing. Other countries have done a, a better job of incentivizing some of these smaller startups. For example, in the UK, they've been running challenge competitions. So they'll put out a, a question or a problem and get a, a whole bunch of different types of companies to participate. And then they, they can get funding if they're a winner. There's some sort of a grant, but they're very aware of the fact that this is, again, an opportunity for them, and they might not have giant corporations like we do here in the U.S., but they have some very eager and very creative smaller companies, whether it's developers or startups, that they want to help bring along, and they're doing that in a very systemic way. So I think that's important and, and good for them. It would be nice to see the U.S., I think, do something similar. We've done that in our other areas, but we haven't done it specifically with respect to XR. In addition to being a global leader on XR, is there also room for global collaboration to address these issues? How could the United States potentially work with allies or partner countries when it comes to either knowledge exchanges or regulation or other components of a solid XR strategy? I do think there's room for both. We quoted in our report the G7. They had a meeting in Kyoto, I think it was over the summer, and this was part of the, the leaders' communique, talking about the metaverse and XR, and stressing the fact that we're at a pivotal moment now and that it's important for like-minded countries to be working together about what the technology is going to look like, how it's going to be regulated, so that we can ensure that it reflects democratic values and that we're not ceding this to other countries that might have a different perspective on that. So I think the U.S. is naturally going to be a leader unless we let that slip away because we have been at the forefront of this technology for a long time and we do have some of the major players. Again, Microsoft, Meta, Apple now is in the game, Google. But that doesn't mean that we can't work and, and that we shouldn't work with other countries, especially when it comes to, I think, supply chain issues and also around governance. Yeah. And I, I think for the U.S. to play a leadership role abroad, we have to have a vision of what this technology is starting at, in our home base here. And so we've seen challenges with U.S. leadership on issues around data privacy because we don't have a comprehensive data privacy law. And so we really need to put forth, I think, our own unique American vision for what the future of immersive technologies in the metaverse will be. And then we can go out and work with like-minded 
allies in forums that already exist, like the EU, U.S. Trade and Technology Council, the OECD, the World Economic Forum, WTO, IPEF. There are so many multilateral fora out there that are ripe for this type of cooperation and collaboration, but just XR has not risen to a level of priority yet. Where can the government start in crafting that vision? What are the first steps that Congress or the federal government can take? So one of our number one recommendations from the report is for Congress to establish an advisory committee that would bring together experts from industry, from government, from academia, from civil society to work together and to craft that type of strategy and provide recommendations to Congress that's worked in other cases, such as the National Security Commission on AI or the NIAC. And I think it's really important to pull expertise from different aspects of society. So we don't want just the technologists or just the government bureaucrats doing this. We want people from you know academia and civil society to also engage in that. Um, and so that is our, I think, top recommendation for Congress moving forward is to introduce legislation that would establish that type of advisory council. And we want the advisory council to take a very honest look at the technology, both not not just Pollyanna-ish opportunities, although obviously it's an important technology because there are tremendous opportunities, but also what are the risks and challenges? What are the considerations around privacy and equity, for example? But looking at all of that in a comprehensive way and creating a vision for, as, as Miranda put it, I really like that, an American vision for the technology. Yeah. So I think one of my main takeaways from this conversation is that there is a lot to see in this industry. This is a technology that's growing very quickly that can have enormous impact across all sectors throughout the United States and the world and a technology that governments, including the U.S. and um, both U.S. and non-U.S. governments are paying very close attention to. So before we wrap up our conversation for today, are there any other trends or anything else that you're keeping an eye out for in the world of XR that our listeners should know? It's a good question. We continue to track what's going on in Europe. As we mentioned, we were in Brussels a couple of weeks ago speaking with industry stakeholders, but also talking with members of parliament and the European Commission as well. It's interesting that they, again, I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but they're very determined to be the winners in this space and to, and to lead the world in metaverse technology. So because of that, they're a little more cautious, I think, than usual around regulation. They don't want to come in with such a heavy hand that they're impeding their own homegrown talent from developing in this space. So that's something that we continue to track. What what are the trends over in Europe in particular? What are they thinking in terms of regulation? You can see hints, I think, in the debate around artificial intelligence of some of the flashpoints that will also apply to XR. So there are parallels, I think, between the AI conversation and, and what we will see in the coming years in immersive tech. Yeah, and I, I think that the conversation about how AI and XR and frankly a whole suite of these emerging technologies will converge will be increasingly important over the next you know two to three years. If 2022 was the year of the metaverse and 2023 was the year of AI, I think that increasingly 
we should start to view these technologies not as disparate, but as part of an ecosystem. Um, mm-hmm. And we've seen hints of that in some of these strategies that we've covered from you know South Korea and China and the EU. And I hope that that continues to, to trend because I think it's an important perspective for the U.S. to have. Absolutely. Well, Joan and Miranda, thank you so much for joining us on the CSAS This Does Not Compute podcast. I took away a lot from this conversation. So thank you so much again for joining us here. Thank you so much for having us. And if anyone would like to learn more, go to xra.org. The full report is available there. You can dig into it. Lots of good information in there. But thank you again to CSIS. Thank you. Yes, check out the report. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.